Welcome to Music Speaks. This podcast dedicates itself to how music impacts people's lives. For this show, we usually have two co-hosts. My name is Sean Rakunis and my friend Hunter Sigona. Hunter and I believe that many people have a playlist that makes their life unique through music. We pride ourselves on building our musical knowledge with our featured guests, jamming to incredible music, talking about a wide variety of artists and composers, and everything in between. Here is today's musical quote. Whether we like country or rap or rock, music helps us share ourselves, our dignity and sorrows, our hopes and joys. It allows us to hear one another, to invite each other in. Music shows us that it all matters. Every story within every voice, every note within every song. Is that right, ladies? Michelle Obama. Tonight we will sit down with my friend Meredith Newman, a DMA student at UConn. Meredith Newman is a choir master of the Cathedral of St. Joseph in downtown Hartford, conducting the Scala Cantorum and the Cathedral Youth Chorus. She was formerly the director of Connecticut Children's Chorus and the conductor of the Hart Camerata at the University of Hartford. She is a sought-after clinician and festival conductor, and her ensembles are known for their innovative approach to performance and their intense passion for music making. A Connecticut native, Meredith holds a master's degree in music education from the Hart School and has a decade of experience teaching middle school, choir, in both public and private schools. She is currently pursuing her DMA in choral conducting at the University of Connecticut. In addition to her teaching and conducting appointments, she is an active performer in the greater Hartford region. She is a founding member of the early music vocal ensemble Voce Concitato, specializing in the music of late Renaissance and early Baroque periods. Meredith is also a member of Voce, Connecticut's premier professional choral ensemble. And without further ado, let's welcome Meredith to the podcast. All right. Hey, Meredith, how's it going? It's going. (laughs) The bells have chimed in Hunter's house, and that means it's time for us to start. For those listeners who have been hearing the bells, that is a great time for us to start asking questions to Meredith about her bio. Um, And I want to start right away, Meredith. And I feel like um, a question that I like to ask teachers is um, a belief that is always thrown out there is that students can learn from their teachers, but um, but students can also teach their teachers. Um, what would you say you have learned from your students? Hmm. Well, yeah, I don't know. I love my students. I've learned, I don't know, I'm kind of like my students. I, I just learned to just, I guess, just be be a human, like the animal version of a human, like just tell it like it is, call it like you see it. Um, I really, yeah, that's probably my favorite aspect of middle schoolers is just they, they call it as it is. Okay. All right. And my second question is as an alumnus of the Connecticut children's choir, what did it mean to you to become the director and now former director of the choir? And how did that experience impact your own musical directing? Well, yeah, I joined, I joined that choir when I was in fourth grade, um, and it was an amazing experience for me. I loved, yeah, I loved every minute. I loved being around other people who loved music as much as I did, um, a, place, a place where you could just love music and just 
be weird and that's all good. And it didn't feel weird because everybody was weird. So it was normal. Um, <laughs> so yeah, that was really awesome. Um, and it really shaped me and, and the conductors I had there really shaped me as a musician, even today, like even today, the way I approach music, I can still remember some of the things I learned there. Um, so yeah, and then it's really cool to have the opportunity to do that with more kids. The program certainly has changed a lot. It's been many, many years, um, <laughs> but yeah, it's really great to be able to, to hopefully share something as meaningful with students today. Right. And now you're, as you were in that group then, and now looking back as the director then, how did it feel? Was it weird looking at someone like who was fourth grade, as maybe a fourth grader like you were, and as you were directing, did that sort of remind you of, of what it used to be like? Because I knew you said that it changed a bit, but. Yeah, that's interesting. I would actually say not necessarily, because I would say there, yeah, it has changed quite a bit. The world has changed quite a bit. I think at the time when I was in it, it was very classically focused. A mm -hmm. um, lot of classical music, a lot of traditional repertoire, classic technique, you know, um, whereas now, and I, I like both, you know, now it's, it's a lot more diverse repertoire and music and movement and mm -hmm. um, it, and it attracts more kids, but maybe a different kind of kid, if that makes sense. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it is, it is different, but I think that's okay. Right. And I think it's interesting that you talk about movement because that was a discussion that we did talk about with your research project, which we will get back to eventually with your list because of all the videos that you had sent us that involved yeah. movement. I'm sure Hunter has a lot of questions about movement too. Um, he's nodding with uh, content and laughing. Mm -hmm. off. Um, as uh, also a founding member of the group Voce Concertado, I hope I said it right. Yeah. Um, what was an influential factor for creating the group? Um, and what was the desire to create this group? So that's like, yeah, I, I have two, I have two very, I don't know, I guess they're not that different, but two different sides. I have this, like, I love working with middle school kids. I love teenager choirs, that kind of thing. And then I also really love early music, <laughs> like high level early music. So it's just kind of two different passions. So that was what that came from, just an opportunity to do, um, you know, to get to do a lot of one on a one on apart stuff, a lot of uh, we love doing like mannerist stuff, crunchy chords, late you know late Renaissance, early Baroque, mm -hmm. um, and to and to be able to do it with a small ensemble where everyone could have feedback and we could kind of create our own passionate version of this music. That's mm -hmm. why we started it. Right. Yeah. Talk about the greats, the Taluses and the um, you know Box and the um, Vivaldi's. I mean, kids nowadays are you know pumping those things out. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, but I, I want—I mean, I just wanted to know because where did that desire come from? Have you heard? Had you heard other groups at that time, and you were like, you know what? I want to sort of explore what these groups are exploring. So I do think I'm—you know—I haven't kind of figured this all out yet, but I actually do think it's linked. But I um. The kind of music I tend to like is kind of a very, um, like a primal kind of music, something that really speaks to, to what I feel is like the instinct to make music. And for some reason, early music feels that way to me. Um, I haven't put my finger quite on why yet, but I'm working on it. But uh, also when I was a kid, my, um, my father was a high school music teacher and he had like one of those high school choirs that did like, you know, the madrigal feast. <laughs> in the winter, right? Like ye old, ye old feast of madrigals. Yeah, fundraiser. Um, 
But I think that had a really big influence on me because I, I heard that music from an early age. I think he got that job when I was in second grade. And I remember he let me come and sing a couple songs, like be the flower girl, you know? And that was like huge <laughs> for me because I keep thinking about it, like what second grader has one of their first choral experiences singing music from like the 16th century? Yeah. That's not normal, you know? So I, think it, I think it really got in my ear and I just, I loved it. The first, uh, the first cassette tape I ever bought, Loser Alert, was um, Anonymous 4. <laughs> no, that's not true. Before that, it was Mariah Carey and Boys to Men. And then it was Anonymous 4, because I am mm. very cool. I just love, yeah, I just love the sounds. I love the, I want to hear fourths and fifths all day long. And I love, yeah, I love it. I love the dissonances. I love everything about it. I love the progression of Boys to Men and then... <laughs> All the way down. I, I really believe it's linked. There's something about if you listen to like Baroque and early music, it's, it's really easy to sing it in like an R&B style. There's mm. got to be something to that. Right. Um, yeah. yeah, all these, all these things. All of those things. Um, <laughs> I want to punch the next question over to Hunter because he has a similar question that I usually ask, or Hunter usually asks. I'm not really sure, but Hunter, take it away. <laughs> Hello. Yes. Um, so my question that. Uh, you know, you know, Sean has his, I think he was confused reading our, our uh, little script that we have here. Um, like he has questions he likes to ask. This is one I usually like to ask uh, for teachers in particular. Um, how did you get started teaching? I mean, we sort of can see already because you have such a musical background, but you know, a lot of people, they like music and they enjoy performing, but they're like, yeah, teaching's a no-no. Yeah, I actually, mine was the opposite. I thought I was going to be I don't even think this is real. Like I thought I was like, oh, I'm going to teach English. But I think it was just kind of arbitrary because I was like, I'm good, I'm good at lots of things. But which says really what I wanted to do was teach. I just right. I love teaching. Um, so, yeah, definitely teaching came first, which I don't know. I don't know if that was the influence of like, you know, I don't not necessarily seeing my father as a teacher. I don't think so. I think it's just kind of like in me. I, ju I just mm -hmm. really enjoy um, I enjoy um, like motivating people, being kind of like captain of the team, not necessarily like leading, <laughs> right? but like, yeah, I really like inspiring people to be their best and like making them comfortable enough that, mm -hmm. that they, can, they can just explore and learn about themselves and, and be authentic. Yeah, I just love it. I love teaching and I love music. And so it just- <laughs> It all sort of comes together. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I think that happens in a lot of cases, right? People who are going to be teachers, who are meant to be teachers. I think they enjoy the teaching, not that they enjoy it more than the subject they're actually teaching, but I think that it's the teaching part of it, which they enjoy. And it happens to be, like you said, you happen to also like music. So teaching that, you know, it works great. Works out. You know what I mean? So I think they just, there's something about being in the classroom with the kids. And because, you know, there are a lot of people who are like, Oh, kid! Like, why would you want to be around kids all day long? You know, they're they're kids. You're like, I get away from me. But I, you know, it's a hard thing to explain. It's just something about being able to guide them, like you said. Yeah, and I feel the same way. I mean, so like my other gig is at the Cathedral of Saint Joseph, and that's with adult mm -hmm. professionals. And I feel exactly the same way there. I still feel like a teacher. I still feel like a like a guide, like a teammate who motivates. Uh, you know what I mean? I just I think. Right. Yeah, it's just kind of a mindset of how you approach things in that that teacher way. Right, exactly. Which yeah. leads to my next question, which is you, from your bio, have taught in many different environments, um, which we've already, you know, seen from, from your answers to some of the questions. And 
particularly in this case, I'm interested in the private versus the public world. I did my intern, I did my student teaching in public school, but I did a um, internship in private school. And what do you think the biggest difference is between teaching in public versus private? How, what do you think the influences in the environment are? I thought it was a huge difference. I, you know, I started in public school and stayed there for a long time. Um, and as uh, kind of like teacher evaluation and all of that stuff started coming to a head and it started getting so insane with uh, basically saying every student has to be at this level, whether or not they're ready for it. The, it's kind of like the art of teaching was no longer respected, um, which mm -hmm. wasn't the fault of administrators. I mean, this was coming, you know, it just comes from legislation and craziness. And so I, I was looking for a break from that, which is why I went to private school. But I found that the students in private school, I didn't feel as connected for me. And this is just a totally yes. personal thing. And it was such a lesson for me. I, I was naive. I had no idea there was any difference. But um, I found in public school, they tended to be the ones who wanted to come and like eat lunch with me and just chat and like watch something on the screen, you know what I mean? And then like yeah. private school kids, I'd be like, hey, do you want to start like an after school, like whatever? And they were like, um, no, not really, thanks. <laughs> I was like- Yeah, oh, I know exactly what you mean. Okay, you know, like they just, I don't know, there were so many opportunities, they had so much going on. Um, yeah, so I, I think I'm more of a like, get your hands dirty kind of person, which is not to say you can't do that at a private school, but it just wasn't quite the right fit for me. Yeah, I found a similar atmosphere, right? It was it was very much, I, I think the private schools, they push so much the academic rigor. And I don't know whether or not you actually get anything more out of it, but I think because of that, it's very much like pump out the grades for, mm. for this from the student standpoint, pump out the grades, go home. Yeah. You yeah. know, it's so for that, it's not as much of an investment. Yeah when I don't want to say public school is less rigorous because there are some obviously that are, but I know what you, I, I get totally what you're saying. And I mean, we have to talk about the elephant in the room too, which is money because right. private school, and this isn't across the board, but generally speaking, the people going to private school, most of them are paying for it. And so they're coming from more affluent backgrounds and they have more opportunities both at this private school, but also at home. So they yes. have these things in their home. They're the ones getting more often than not private lessons they have their horse class, they have this, you know what I mean? They have a lot yeah. more going on. Yeah, generally, it's a generalization, but yeah. And how, yeah, but there's some validity to it. I mean, yeah. clearly because there is the, the is a difference, yeah. but how do you think from a music standpoint, like teaching in a music classroom, mm. how was it affected? Well, <laughs> oh God, I don't wanna be down on private schools. In my experience, my personal experience there, I felt that there was a little less investment mm -hmm. because, and I guess that links back to what I was saying, because I think for them, this was something on the side. Music right. was just in the middle of the day, almost like, you know, in elementary school when they consider it a special. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, exactly. Well, right, like send the kids to, oh, okay. Um, whereas when I was in public school, it felt like essential. It felt like these kids respite. They loved coming to music in the middle of the day. They wanted, I mean, gen you know, again, generally, so, some kids want none of it, but you know, <laughs> those kids wanted like more of it and it was fun and they were invested and they wanted that concert to be kick-ass. And mm -hmm. I found at the private school, they were like, concert? Oh, okay. Yeah, it's just, there just wasn't that same passion and investment in it. At least not in the in-school ensembles. Maybe yeah. they were doing that elsewhere. Yeah. 
Right. And then this leads to a further question, which is less of private versus public, but I know you're primarily a, a vocal teacher, as I understand it, but have you taught instrumental classes as well? Very, very little in terms of like in school. Okay. No, very, yeah. very little. Um, yeah, just, just like one one year I had like string lessons thrown on the plate and I was like, oh, <laughs> yeah, I'm definitely qualified for this. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to make that work. Right. So it was mostly me being like, oh, I hear that you're playing a sharp instead of a flat. Do you know how to fix that? Because <laughs> I don't. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that was mostly it. But uh, yeah, sorry. No, that's okay. So that so the, which leads to my final question, which is, what do you find in any environment is the the hardest part of teaching vocal works? Yeah. Well, and I I actually was a band kid. Like I played I played in the band. I was an instrumental. You know. Uh, and there's a huge difference, and there's a huge difference between the kids who participate in band versus who do choir. Um, I think a lot of it has to do with the personal nature of singing. It's so vulnerable. Oh mm -hmm. my God! It and I feel it. I am. I have like terrible stage fright. Not for conducting. Like I turn my back to an audience, I can do anything. I could stand in front of three thousand singers. Oh, the bells! Does that mean something? Yes, the bells. Does <laughs> that mean something's happening? But like, yeah. I, I, I think it's because of the vulnerability when you when you sing, you you don't have an instrument to hold, you don't have a button to push. You're really just giving yourself. It's your own physical being and your own emotion coming out through your body. Oh my God. So mm -hmm. I think that's really hard. And I think if you haven't had the right teacher, it can be really scary. And a lot of people will stop singing. A lot of people will play in the band, but they will drop choir. They'll be done with that once they go through puberty. Right. Which, you know, I mean, it's unfortunate, obviously, uh, many reasons, but I, you're right. I have found that the, the choir students are often more reticent to participate mm -hmm. across all age levels. Yeah. Oh, you know yeah. I mean? it, yeah. It, it, which I think is why I love doing it so much, because I think I'm, I'm kind of good at it. Like, that's that uh -huh. thing I've got, which is like, I can help if I can help people feel comfortable and know that it's totally okay to be like just okay and to share what you've got to give i think that's the most amazing gift like that's my goal in life i want to be able to do that for everybody <laughs> yeah yeah no it's a very a worthy goal i think and it's one we need a little more of from people you know just in general right because you know they say the arts are sort of the the uh, i don't know if you'd call it the window to the soul that's usually the eyes but um it, it's a way of expression and i think you know in a, in a very angry world i think people need to find a, a, be a better outlet yeah and, and the, if they are frustrated the message i hope to give to them is just like you do you like we can't all be everything for everyone we don't all have everything to offer but we each have something we can do. And that's why I think I didn't like even teacher evaluation or no child left behind. There are some things you're gonna have to leave us behind for. Each person is not the same. So mm -hmm. I suck at a lot of things. And I'm also really, really good at a lot of other things and it's okay. So we all bring what we can to the table. We bring our pros and our cons to the table. I love choirs because then you just mix it all together. We each cover each other's asses. And in the end, we get an amazing product. That's what I think. Very well said. I wish more people thought that way. <laughs> and on that note, no music pun intended, we will be taking a quick break sponsored by uh, our friends at Anchor who help us put the 
the show together. And if you'd like to support this podcast before we take a break, please go to anchor.com and search Music Speaks Podcast to find ways to reach out to us. And you'll find our social media and the ways that you can contribute to this podcast. So without further ado, take a break and be right back. All right, and we are back with my friend Meredith. Meredith, the first song that we're going to talk about is Song of Hope, uh, written by Susanna Lindmark and uh, Swedish composer slash singer slash conductor, uh, creator of the Arctic Light Young Singing Group. Um, and you had mentioned to me that you have conducted every single one of these pieces. You wanted to let us both know that right away. I mean, that's a very important yeah. thing to mention, and that's great. That'll definitely cross out some questions. But um, <laughs> how were you introduced to Susanna? Well, this is just my, I don't know, a lot of people always ask like where I get my rep because I do tend to find interesting repertoire. You know, they go like, where do you find it? It's not a mystery. It's like this thing called YouTube that we have now. <laughs> so I pretty much just Minor like thing. stalk like this group. Yeah, I just like stalk choirs that I like and I just... Yeah, so that's how I find rep, and that's how I found this. It was uh, Kantika Kerala, who I love. Um, they do a lot of, yeah, they do a lot of, like, funky stuff and, like, movement and cool stuff. And right. I saw this piece, and I was like, I want it. I love it. Um, so, yeah, that's how I found it. How do you make up the movement in this video? Because the movement in this video is incredible. Because it's, cool. it spans, I mean, when I watched it, I was like, wow, there's so many ages of young children to older children in this video. Mm. How, what, what, what makes sense to you with the movement in this, in this video? It's so cool. I mean, it's, I would say it's not as hard as it seems. This is one of those things where like, right, you would assume like, oh my God, what middle schooler, what any human is going to like be comfortable enough to, you know, do this like, ah, that, yeah. but I think. I think you would be surprised. It's all about how you present it. When the when the rep is good and it's good, like when the rep is good and when the movement is good and complements the rep and you can tell that it's not, um, I don't know, a lot of movement is like stupid. Sorry, it's just stupid. It's like, it's like old fart music teachers and they're like, you know, step to the right, step to the left. And no, no kid wants to do that. No human wants to do that. But this movement is fun. Like, I don't know, don't you want to do it? Mm, absolutely right oh. like i do it in my shower like i'll just like hear these like yes because we're all pro i think we are all programmed to do this stuff we right. want to do it it's mm -hmm. very again I, I it's something primal about it that i really like tapping into and i think kids can feel that too so yeah i think when you're going about choreographing something like this coming up with this movement it's really about just not being afraid it's that simple because there's nothing you know, shocking or weird about this movement. It's very natural. It goes with the, the music, right? Right, absolutely. It's not, it's not deep, you know, ballet choreography. It's it's just yeah. very how you feel when you do this music. Right. It's rousing, too. It's yeah. exciting. Yeah. yeah. It's very fierce and kind of like almost in your face. Yes, right. Um, and it's, yeah, like pushing out. Yeah. Mm, yeah. And music, yeah. I think that that motion of I mean I know our podcasters obviously can't see what we're doing but we're moving our hands forward as in the talk the discussion of momentum and and where do we go you know when we're moving mm -hmm. and I think like you were saying that that adds to what we're talking about within movement and we've had this discussion before about you saying that movement encourages better sound 
mm-hmm. because people who are rigid and stiff, they might not have the same effect of, you know, someone who feels like they're able to get into that space. I've seen um, maybe professional vocalists who f- don't feel, who feel like they have to stand right there, but then watching, you know, Stephanie Blythe play the ukulele and walk around and be like, here we go. And she has the most yeah. extreme range of singing I've ever seen in my entire life. Yeah. So, I mean, that just, just goes to show you the, the range of availability that is out there with, with what you were talking about. And I wanted to ask you, because this was the topic that you chose for your research project. How, yeah. does, how does this piece and that sort of research impact what you thought about this piece or even before you did it? Like, what was your reaction to doing this piece? Yeah, no, it's definitely linked. Uh, it is interesting because it is technically choreographed movement, right? This isn't like personal musical gesture. It's not like we're asking these kids like, do something. We're kind of telling them what to do, mm-hmm. but but I think there's still there's still room, even if you watch the video that I saw, I know again, listeners can't see the video, but if you can imagine, each mm-hmm. person can bring a bit of themselves to these gestures mm-hmm. for sure. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so that that is something interesting to consider. This is choreographed movement, but it doesn't seem strict, if that makes sense. It doesn't seem it doesn't seem like it forces the body to constrict, like it's limiting. It actually seems like it's freeing. It's a kind of movement freeing as you right. as you would sing. Yeah. Right. And I want to mention to those listeners who do want to check out the video, Hunter will add that video to this podcast. So you can go check that out after that. Um, I want to ask you because this piece I believe is in Dorian. And I believe this piece is also found to be in 6-8. I'm not sure if you would agree with that. But I found that with that sort of symbolism, I couldn't really get behind the message of hope. Like, where do we find that? Is it between the lines? or Because when I think of 6-8 and Dorian, I think of sea shanties and maybe more sea shanties. <laughs> oh, know? that's you put that. Yeah, okay. So I wanted to ask you, what is your opinion about that? And how does it bring about the word hope? So this piece actually has, you're right, you, there is a lot of 6-8 in it. There are also a few measures of mixed meter. Like there's a, it's a mix. So there's some, uh, there are some measures of five. Then three. So I think that helps it be a little less shanty-ish. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, really, certainly like the accompanying rhythm has a, a bit more of that da 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 where it's like shifting between the macro of like a two and a three. Right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's not, yeah, it's yeah. not to like go to the bar. So I think, and I think those kinds of rhythms and that rhythmic shift has, has that kind of, um, it's like an mm-hmm. energy, a youthful mm-hmm. energy and a hopeful right. energy. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I, that's where I, what I get. And it's kind of like a, you know, so it's got that like, burst of energy and burst of hope, I think. Right, yeah, cool. I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, now speaking of another composer who I am so excited to, to hand it over to Hunter because when I handed it over to Hunter, I was like, woo, because I love this song so much. I wanted to give Hunter a chance to talk about it. So Hunter, take it away. Love this so much. He actually wrote woo in the script. I saw um, <laughs> Insert woo here. Um, so... The next song is called Panda Chant by Meredith Monk. Mm-hmm. And for those listening who, who might not know Meredith Monk, right? She was a New York City born composer, 
1942. And, you know, she's a composer, singer, director, choreographer, and new opera and theater work creator, films and installations, many, many various uh, various mediums by which she, she creates. And she stresses the idea of vocal, uh, extended vocal technique and dis interdisciplinary performance. I don't know why I had a hard time saying that. Um, and, you know, I, I didn't know what to expect. I turned it on and I'm like, okay, well, they're like in a cult. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it, it's certainly unique, right? It's a unique song. Mm -hmm. And what drew you to this piece? I mean, you've talked about your, your, your uh, focus on movement and is that really what drew you to this? Because I wouldn't call it melodic, so I wouldn't think you'd you'd pick this piece for its uh, sound. Right. Well, yeah, and I guess I, again, it's that primal thing. I really like like a pounding rhythm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I love beat. I'm like a baby. I just like a beat. I just want heartbeat. But um, I actually I can't take credit for like picking the piece when I did because uh, Meredith Monk was supposed to do like a residency at the University of Hartford. And they needed a group oh. to work on this piece, which I had heard of in the past and I'd always wanted to do. <laughs> so I was like, oh my God, yes. Oh, there you go. Right. Um, so that's how that happened. I can't, I can't say that I, you know, grabbed it when I did, but um, yeah, I love it. I I think it's great. I even though, right, it's not melodic, it's got that like tribal pound to it. Yes, very much so. That's a good way of putting it, tribal. Mm -hmm. Um and what do you think? Because obviously it says that she is a is a um a proponent of vocal technique extended quote unquote vocal technique what do you think is the most creative aspect of the voice used in this performance because there's many different things yeah oh my god this and by the way this is like one of the most difficult pieces i ever had to do simply because when you're it's not it's it really should be learned by rote because when you look at it on the page you're like what the heck like and they ask you for things like a goat trail. Mm -hmm. I was like, goat trill? What is that? So I would say maybe the goat trill was something I certainly have never seen before and did not know how to approach. I actually can't really do it, but it's like that, something like that. <laughs> yeah. You know, and then- And that one girl in the background in the, in the top row, I, I when I said cult, I had a different song in mind. We'll get to that later. Okay. But yeah, there's the row of with the girl in the back and she did that and that's, I was like, what? It's crazy. Wow. And like, yeah, we actually did this piece in a circle, which was how, <clears throat> you know, her, her assistant worked with us on it and recommended it. And I wouldn't have thought of it. It was kind of cool. So when you're in the circle and you're going right and left, the circle slowly like shifts. It's very cool. But it also gives this neat impression of like one goat trill calling to another across the circle rather oh, than, yeah. So like the version you see, you know, they're, I guess, kind of calling out to the audience, but in the circle, they're calling out to each other, to the tribe. It's really cool. That is cool. And I guess it leads to my next question, which is it says that Monk is a pioneer in, in you know, vocal performance and, and sort of the, the approach to vocal teaching. And what, first, I guess it's a two part question. First part being what is interdisciplinary performance and for if, if you could define it for the listeners. And then two, what do you think is the benefit to interdisciplinary performance? Mm. Well, I'm not Meredith Monk. I don't know what her definition of the interdisciplinary is, but I could say, knowing her stuff, I'm into it too. Yeah, I think it's it's where you're not just you're not just doing the music, you're not just performing the sound. You're also doing something visual. You're doing something kinesthetic, right? Mm -hmm. Where there's like physical movement. It might even involve physical movement across into the audience, but also something artistic, 
Like if you watch, she's got, what's that thing called? Turtle something. I don't know. This is a really cool thing that she has. That's like, it's just so artsy. It's so freaking cool. You know, like they're just wearing these cool outfits, doing these like wacky things. It's a video. So I think that's what it is, is, is actually seeing music as, as art in the bigger sense, like being able to, to make art out of this, not just the sound. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. I forgot the second part of the question. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that's, that's okay. I forget things all the time. Okay. Um, <laughs> the second part was what is the benefit to the interdisciplinary performance? And you talked a little bit about it earlier when you talked about the benefits to sound production, but I was curious to hear a little more. Uh, well, maybe this is going to get like artsy fartsy, but like, I don't know. I just think it's the benefit of art in general. I think it, it has to do with that thing about singing and fear about vulnerability, self-expression, and just and being able to see the world in this more colorful way and cuz cuz life is crazy and life is messy and being able to frame it artistically is so cool and so powerful i don't know i love i love mm -hmm. art art and music and so yeah doing this kind of thing i think it helps it's kind of like travel when you travel somewhere the way you look at your when you come back home the way you look at things is a little bit different when you do this kind of inter interdisciplinary art the way you walk through life is a little bit different. Mm -hmm. yeah. ah, that's, a, that's a good way of putting it. And you mentioned expression, right? And one of the biggest, you know, one of the biggest things people want to express is love. And that leads well into the next song, song that Sean wants to talk to you about. Master of segues, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, <laughs> the next one we're going to talk about is Sean A Love Song. Uh, written by uh, Roger Emerson. And for mm -hmm. those who don't know Roger Emerson, Roger Emerson, uh, with over 900 titles in print and 30 million copies in circulation, Roger Emerson is the most widely performed composer slash arranger of popular choral music in the world today. His works include choral arrangements of Josh Groban's You Raise Me Up, Seasons of Love from Rent, Defying Gravity from Wicked, Joyful, Joy from, from Sister Act, and Don't Stop Believing from Glee. Um, this one was sort of a little bit of a departure from that. Um, and I believe that this song was written after a Shoshone Native American tribe poem. Hmm. Um, what is your relationship with the song, Meredith? I love the poem. I, I actually had done in Connecticut Children's Chorus when I was a kid. I did a different setting of this poem, which I also love. It's a great poem. But uh, I, I'm so glad you said that about Roger Emerson because... First of all, what I love about this song is like, what? It's like out of left field because Roger Emerson, and I love pop music. They're like, that's like, he's your go-to. You go to like J.W. Pepper, you're like, oh God, my kids want to do, <laughs> they want to do, eighth grade has to do their popular song. What does Emerson got? What arrangements does he have? Not that it's not good, like they're great. You're like, you know, that's what it's like. This toe tapper from Roger Emerson will really get your audience thumping, you know? So like, it's totally out of left field. And I find it, it's also, to be honest, this is a piece you program for like, program it for your, your B team choir or your general middle school choir or like a lower level festival choir. Do you know what I mean? This is not, this is not challenging. This is really a basic piece, very accessible. And how incredible is it that this so ex accessible piece is so beautiful. It moves me deeply. The chords are stunning. Um, and they're simple, but they're, it's just so stunning. I, I find this piece magic. Yeah. Right. I, I have to say, Meredith, I love doing slam poetry. Especially <laughs> on the show, I like doing slam poetry. Hunter can attest to it. He might get even tired of my slam poetry. <laughs> um, so let's even read a little bit of, of the poem itself. So 
without any further ado, let's do it. Fair as the white star of twilight in the sky, clear at the day's end. But she is fairer, she is dearer, she, my heart's friend. Far stars and fair in the skies bending, low stars of hearth fires and wood smoke ascending. The, wet, the meadows lark nested, the night hawk is winging. Home through the sharp shine, the hunter comes singing. Mm. Fair is the white star of twilight and the moon roving to the sky's end, but she is fairer, better worth living. She, my heart's friend. Mm. What is your takeaway from that? And what is this poem talking about? Well, it's funny because, and he only sets, he only sets, I think, the first and last um stanzas of that i guess i never i never realized that so i i never realized that it wasn't the whole poem shame on me but <laughs> i don't know uh for me there's some i don't know there's something about this poem i really love it's very um i think it's its simplicity it's mm -hmm. so simple and there's something beautiful like my heart's friend i don't know i find that very moving I, there's because it's well, because we, and we don't even, it's not even necessarily talking about a romantic love necessarily. There's nothing, there's nothing here that indicates that. Mm -hmm. She, my heart's friend. And I don't know, there's something, I, I like that because it's flexible. You can right. make, and even, even the gender of she, not even specifically as a human gender, just like, it doesn't even have to be a human. There's a, there's a feeling of tenderness I get from this, right. the poem. And I, I sense it in Emerson's setting as well. There's this um, very gentle tenderness, like it's almost like it's such a fragile love, something fragile and special about it. That's what I feel. Yeah. You said it perfectly how this piece is very simple, but very beautiful. Even right at the end, it's just really nice. Oh, it's so serene. Um, and, my, and my question is, um, what stands out to you at the end? Is it the, is it the line, the chord, or is it just like the following of the silence well you know i i, I know that people can't hear but you will post maybe this video the video i sent you is one of the only ones i see where i'm like oh my god this conductor gets it like he's not doing this like a throwaway emerson piece right if you don't get it that last section isn't special it's just it's just a recap right it just repeats the material again but if you get it the last section is like a reflection you know what i mean it's like we've sung it we've said it again and then there's a thought and then you go, oh my God, I'm, I really mean this. I really want to say this, but she, and then you go. That's what I feel. It's like you've, you've been restrained, you've been thinking, you've been thoughtful, and then you just let this emotion out at the end of, of how, yeah, it's overwhelming. That's right. what I feel. I, I, I think that this piece adds that to the canon and I'm so glad that you talk about that. Um, but now just sort of flip the switch <laughs> on, on peaceful to now a little more, uh, in your face, uh, Hunter, take it away. Yes, yeah, so the next song we have is, I don't actually know how to properly pronounce it. Is it Tijak, Tiak? Oh, <laughs> Chak. Chak, okay, so I was just way off. Yeah. Um, and this was the cultist song, okay. Um, <laughs> I like culty songs, yes. I do. <laughs> so for those who don't know Stephen Hatfield, who is the composer of the song, would you say it was Chuck? Yeah. Okay. Uh, is a resident of Vancouver Island where he composes for theater, but he's also taught band, chorus, stage band, vocal, jazz, guitar, keyboard, steel drums, and music appreciation. Um, so he's sort of an all, all uh, well-rounded in the arts field as well as uh, English courses. 
in grad school, as well as teaching techniques. And, you know, the first thing when I'm looking at this is like, okay, they're in a circle, so that's different. So not everyone's looking at the audience. And I guess it's, what do you call it? The other name for it is the monkey chant. And mm -hmm. my first question is, sorry, there was a lag. I wasn't sure if you heard me or not. Um, and my first question is, how do you think he, he personifies a monkey? Like, is there any particular techniques that he uses? Well, so interesting, this, this piece is actually, I didn't write it. He, it's basically because this is based on something called the Balinese monkey chant. This is something okay. that's a traditional, um, a traditional, I guess it's like a music and movement thing that they do in Bali. Yes. Um, and it's done in a circle, same kind of thing with those with those noises. So I think it's it is it's those noises. And if you've ever seen those very frantic monkeys, these aren't these aren't the big chimps. These are like mm -hmm. little like <laughs> right the little scary <laughs> ones. They're like little, but they're scary. It's like those Jurassic Parkings, and they're like ah, you know. Mm -hmm. That's the thing. <laughs> Yeah, so it's like those little those little monkeys just kind of yeah. Mm -hmm. And what do you think? You know, because obviously, since you said they're all in a circle, all facing towards a singular performer in the middle. What do you think that does for the yeah. performance? It's like, why cool. would you even have it there? Yeah. And I got a little bit of flack for this when I did this one. We <laughs> we happened to do this one in um in a Catholic church, which just happens to be where we do some concerts with like major crucifix hanging over, and so it just so <laughs> shocking and chanting to this. Uh, and I was like, I'm sorry, it really did look like super cult, like super mm -hmm. okay, crazy, like, <laughs> and it wasn't meant to be. And also, some people asked too because I I was the one in the center. I I was the leader. And some people liked that and some people didn't. They said, oh, you know, you don't belong singing with the choir. We you want to see the kids. Um, but I think it's a really cool statement about the relationship between the choir leader and the choir. Mm -hmm. It's that it's not, it's not backs to, yeah, but the choir leader is what kind of brings it all together, but you're all doing one piece and the audience is almost observing. That's what's so interesting. The Everyone, you know, the group has kind of their backs to the audience. The yeah. audience is almost like, peeping in on this very strange ritual, which is sometimes I think how concerts feel, that you have this very personal rapport with your kids and with the, you know, and then you have this audience kind of like watching this strange mm -hmm. ritual unfold. So that's my take on it. I love it. I think it's a really cool statement. That is interesting. I never thought about that, but it is sort of like a, a, a personification of the, the band leader and group you know what i mean it's i never thought about that but you're right i because when you really think about it right i mean the conductor doesn't really look at the audience when the most the majority of the time and it that is a little odd right you you, you sort of ignore the people who are there and focus on the people in front of you who are also not looking at the audience and even though they're facing them that's interesting i never thought about it that way yeah. but you're right and it, you know, talk about vulnerability too. When a choir gets up there to perform and they they have to, right, they're just stared at by all these fish faces, just staring mm -hmm. at them, waiting to be entertained. <laughs> so it's so it's an interesting opportunity for the kids as well. Right, because it's not even like they're... Yeah, go ahead. Oh, sorry. There was like a lag. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, no, all, all I was gonna say was that uh, it, it's not like they're actively participating in 
I'll say quote unquote the ritual, right? I mean, right. it's even in a regular concert, they're just observing. Right. Yes, they contribute, we know they contribute the energy and we know they contribute uh, an atmosphere, but they're not part of it. Right. Which is unfortunate. And that's kind of, I, I, actually, I actually have a presentation on this that I do of, of kind of how do we get, right? How do we kind of bring this all together so that we break down that barrier? And this mm -hmm. piece actually, I, I suppose this piece in kind of brings light to the barrier, but that's a good way to do it is to just kind of present this thing, to turn it all around, to show the audience, the conductor in a very animalistic way and right. to require turn their backs to the audience and be like, bitches, please. That's what I think. <laughs> Sorry, I did it again, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's really funny. Yeah, because yeah, in a way it's almost, oh, go ahead. No, that's it. Um, in a way, it's almost like you were you're turning the stage backwards, right? As if the they're on the other side looking at you as the conductor, seeing because obviously conductors, you know, you're signaling while you're conducting to your mm -hmm. subordinates or to the rest of the group. Sometimes those faces are animalistic, you know. <laughs> um, but so it sort of gives them the insight into what is it that you would be doing if they could see you. Mm -hmm. And it's really cool that it's not a classical piece because it's like you said, it's kind of personifying. It's not, it's, it's representing it as the right. relationship between monkey leader and monkey tribe mm -hmm. of how that works. Yeah. Yes. And if, for those listening who are thoroughly confused about what we're talking about, the link will be posted. So you, you may, you may go and be confused for yourself. Um, and so now we move to less of a abstract, less, less, uh, you know, theoretical personification of emotion to a composer who I really like that Sean's going to talk about, um, Carl Jenkins. Yay. I was floored with this piece. Oh my goodness gracious. Um, uh, Kayama, which is written by Carl Jenkins, who is a Welsh instrumentalist and composer. Um, who I asked Hunter to listen to, which I already know that Hunter probably already knows this one. Um, for this one, I I had no idea how to describe it because it, it almost got to the verge of poppy. Oh yeah. Where I was like, you know, in it, it, but it 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 was just so well done, you know. And for those who want to know more about this song, it is the third song from his work Amade. Uh, adiemus. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to say a lot of Welsh in the next few sentences, so I'm very going to apologize for my language. <laughs> but the Adiemus singers are Pirjo, Adiotomaki, Mervi, Hiltunin, Anamari, Karhara, Marja, Rajala, Sade, Risanen, Hanarika, Setonin, Mia, Samaninyanen, Nina, Tapio, and Rika, Timanonin. And I hope I never have to try to say all those Welsh names ever again because that was terrible. No <laughs> kidding. Um, I I don't even know where to start with this song because it was so big, and I just kept listening to it. And when I did homework today, I was just listening to it. So I don't really know where to start with it because there was just so much to talk about. Um, but let's start with this. Um, how do you express the feeling of the song? Because it, it starts two separate ways very mm. laser focused and then it gets really relaxed. 
my mm-hmm. return to that sound, but what? how do you describe this song for those who really don't know Carl Jenkins and, and, and this song, Kayama? Well, yeah, this is from like a, a larger piece that he wrote, multi-movement, Adiemus, which I did. I did this with my friend Gabriel LaFall with Chorus Angelicus, which is so cool. And it's <laughs> his song, Adiemus, is the one everyone knows. Um, you can put that up there too, but uh, oh no, I got lost because the ADD. The ADD, it came, Adiemus. Everyone knows it. Oh, I don't know. Well, anyway, it's a really cool, um, yeah, it's really cool. Oh yeah, Adi Amos, right. Cause it's on like Pure Moods. Remember Pure Moods, that CD you bought when you were in middle school? Cause you were already a 75 year old lady. I do. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, this is totally like new age meets choral music. And like, I don't know, for me personally, I'm not ashamed of it. I freaking love it. I love the new, like all this new age, like sign me up. Yeah, but um, it is really cool, right? Cause at the beginning is like, it's that aggressive tribal thing again, that very primal and very forward voice, uh, almost like a Bulgarian women's choir mm-hmm. sound. If you're familiar with that, nasal, yeah, 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 you know? And then suddenly it's just like, right, it's like Enya, <laughs> right? right? Perfect. Yes. One is like Bulgarian women's yes. choir, and then Enya comes and serenades you, and then the Bulgarians are behind her, like backing her up. Mm. Yeah. 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 I... Which is, and maybe it's a statement about, like, right, the two sides. Yeah. I, th- I almost had vibes of um, I'm not sure if you if you recognize this piece or not, but I think it's Quisinoza by Caroline Shaw, Room Full of Teeth. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that had almost a vibe of what I was looking for in the beginning, and then it was so spacious, and I was like, "That's not Caroline Shaw at all." But that sounds so so open, you know. It was mm-hmm. you know, I, I I had no idea how to to start working on this piece and asking you questions, but. Um, now looking to the name of what Kaya me, Kayama means, uh, and, and it says Kayama means uh, the love of music and its mm. beauty and the value of art, I believe. I think it's Welsh for, for that. And um, how does the song explore this um, validity of, of love or That's validity cool. of, of looking forward to, to, to understanding why we need art in this world? That's interesting. I don't know. I, so um, most of Jenkins stuff that he writes, which I think is really cool, he tends to use nonsense syllables. Like it's not necessarily in a language. So he uses vowels, you know, with appropriate consonants to kind of get across an idea, which I think is so cool because usually vocal, you know, singers don't get that opportunity so much. Instrumentalists are allowed to do, I guess you call it the pure music, right? They're allowed to to just express musical ideas. It doesn't have to be attached to anything. And vocalists always have to sing, oh, this poem by so-and-so, and and how do you feel? So I actually feel like Adi Amos gives you this opportunity to be like, I don't know how I feel, I just feel the music, you know? So, but I mean, maybe in that, maybe that is the point. Like that's the way, it's that expression of art, that pure expression of art with just straight from you. Yeah. The beauty of love and, Another part of the song that I just loved was almost the pan flute, which is kind of pops in to the song. And there are moments where you feel like you're flying. Mm. And not a lot of music does that, but this one does. He's very successful with that. And to provide flight for a flightless person, and obviously people can't fly as long as they try to like, you know, wave their arms as fast as possible. That, that might not even work, but um how do you describe that feeling how do you describe the way he puts you in in that mindset 
you're right. It is kind of like trancy. And mm. uh, yeah, it's almost like, <laughs> it's a bit trippy. It's a bit like you're like, yeah, you know? Right, once that pan flute comes in, I think it's the it's that vibe. The um, the percussion never changes through this whole piece. It's just absolutely constant, absolutely consistent. And I think that gets you in this this loop, this meditative loop. And by the time mm. yeah, by the time the pan flutes come in, oh my god, the lava lamp is like fired up. Yeah, absolutely. And I, right, I think that's what it is. It's that, right, because it it keeps looping and just revisiting, it puts you in this trance-like meditative place and then the pan flute just, ah, just floats. Yeah. Well, Meredith, we're going to take a break. Um, we will get back to more cult-like nature after <laughs> the break. Okay. Um, we will take a break. Um, for those who know the show, now it is a time for us to read our handles. Um, we are on Twitter, we are on Instagram, we are on Facebook, we're on TikTok, and oh my goodness, Hunter, guess what? We're on YouTube now. Who knew? Um, so for Twitter, we are at MusicSpeaks underscore pod. For Instagram, we are MusicSpeaks underscore podcast. For Facebook, we are MusicSpeaks podcast. TikTok, we are at MusicSpeaks underscore podcast. And on YouTube, we are MusicSpeaks podcast. Meredith, don't go away. We'll be right back. All right, and we are back. And the first song that we have on this second half of the list of Meredith's choices are Dreams, or the first song is Dreams of Thee by Eric Barnum. And for those who don't know, Eric Barnum is an American composer. He does choral, instrumental, uh, and, and separate vocal works. And he received his doctorate for, uh, in choral conducting specifically from the University of Washington in Seattle. Um, and he's currently the director of choral activities at Drake University in Des Moines, Iowa. And the first thing I thought of when I heard this song, Meredith, was it has a serious Children of Eden vibe. <laughs> and Sean and I had just done a podcast about Children of Eden, so I had this like idea in my head and I couldn't get out of it. So if you if you don't get that vibe, totally fine. And this was a question that Sean, you sort of had Sean answer, or Sean, I guess, answered when he asked you, but you got the, the chance to perform or conduct this piece already, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And was this at the middle school level you did it? Yes. Right? Yes. Yep. Yeah. All right. And this is a really, like, sort of broad question that goes with this song because it does have a very specific feel to it when you are going to choose a piece of music what do you look for in a piece of music like uh, do you look for particular vocal parts particular vocal ranges time signatures in particular so that's a good question that's another one kind of i you know i talked a little bit about the youtube thing i do i do get this question a lot because my programs tend to be pretty diverse and pretty like wacky and and pretty good like kids i've never really had an experience where like they didn't like the song i picked and i think for me the number one thing when i pick music is just do i like this because mm -hmm. literally it i think so many people go about choosing music because they think it's something they should 
do. So they go, oh, this is good, a good teaching tool. And oh, this one, you know, it's about peace and hope and I should do that. And oh, I should do. If you don't like it, like, first of all, you're going to be like living with it for months, presumably, if you're a school teacher, certainly. Right. But like, if you don't like right. it, nobody else is going to like it either. And if you like a song and you freaking love it, it's going to come through in the way you talk about it, in the way you teach it, in the way you conduct it. That's why that's why it matters on Shoshone Love Song, who's conducting it. Because if you don't like the song, it's going to come out like a piece of poop. If you love mm -hmm. that song, it's going to come out as something special. So that for me is how I choose a piece. So when I'm choosing this piece, it's literally because I can listen to this over and over again. I think it is so stunning. There aren't many great um, YouTube videos of it, but it, it can be so incredible. What a gorgeous violin solo. And the text, I mean, it's that romantic poetry, which is mm -hmm. usually such like drama. But it yes, here. it really works. It's just, I don't know, it moves me. Um, so I choose pieces that speak to me. And I, I think that goes with the theme of offer what you have to offer. I know that I'm not giving everybody the most well-rounded thing, right? So, <laughs> you know, so like, I don't like romantic composers. Brahms Requiem does nothing for me. That's just me. It's weird. I know it's weird. Mm -hmm. I don't say it and I'm like, I'm embarrassed. People are going to judge that. But it's just, that's just who I am. There are other things that do such incredible things for me. So I'm just going to do me. I'm going to share what I can with these kids. And that's how I pick music. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I, I'm glad you said that because, you know, particularly in the band world, right, there are some staple people, staple pieces, or, or I shouldn't say band world, in the, in the wind ensemble world, I know there are a lot of staple uh, composers and their masterworks that you're supposed to quote unquote play. And if you haven't played them by the time you get out of high school, they're like, well, you miss out on blah, 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 because mm. it's the penultimate work of, you know, whatever. And you're like, okay. And then you, you finally hear it. And then you're like, okay, it was nice. But I mean, it, it was like, it's nothing special. And they're like, but it embodies. And you're like, I don't care what it embodies. Yeah. Not to say that there isn't validity to it, obviously, but. Right. And that's like, like with Brahms Requiem, obviously I can see, you know, I see it, I understand. And I know for some people that's just as moving. Whereas for me, like, give me Monteverdi any day. And I'm like, oh my God, you know, and other people are like, mm, do it for me. And that's totally mm -hmm. fine, you know? So I would encourage anyone listening who is a teacher who, who selects repertoire to just go with your heart and go with your gut. You only live once, you only go around once and there's only one you. So if you're mm -hmm. going to waste your time just copying what everyone else did and doing the same piece and doing the same way, there's no point in being yourself. I don't know. Right. And, you know, that's something I find that in, in the teaching world in particular, across all fields, particularly the, the more artistic fields, um, or, or rather I'll, I'll say the non like STEM classes, it's, it's, it, that's a, a concept that's very difficult to balance, right? Because as teachers, you are supposed to instill the love of everything that's come before, right? You're, or at least the, the things that we learn that for us got us interested in the field. You want to try to instill that love into others and hopefully someone picks, you know, picks it up. But at the same time, you know, you're, you're so, you are so, uh, I'll say pressured, but that has such a negative connotation. I don't mean it like that, but you are, you are pressured. Encouraged. To, <laughs> yes. Encouraged, strongly encouraged. That's a much better way of saying it. To look to what's new, right? Like you're, you want to stay, you're trying to stay relevant. You want 
the kids to stay interested. So, you know, at, do you sacrifice the old for the new? Do you sacrifice the new for the old for the sake mm -hmm. of, of tradition? It's a very difficult balance. So in terms of like picking repertoire, I find that something very, because if you're in like, let's say a public school, a semester, you're only going to, for, you know, for those listening, you usually have two concerts, right? Most people are where you have a winter and a spring and you play what? four or five pieces, or you sing four or five pieces. I feel like sometimes maybe, and you could correct me if I'm wrong, I, I don't know this for a fact, sometimes choir gets to do a couple more, one or two maybe more, or maybe yeah. that's totally false. Yeah, usually like five a concert is kind of what I, yeah. Yeah, so that's like the average number for any type of, I think, uh, ensemble strings. I find they tend to do less. Um, but that's just, you know that's just speculation. So anyway, point being, now I'm now I'm the one who's gotten way off topic. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so point being is, how do you find that balance between? Yeah. You should listen to this piece because yes, it's older, but it's really cool, and this piece it's newer. You know it, and you really like it. I mean, I'm not, you know, the way this list makes me seem is that like all I do are like monkey chants, which I could do that, but. You know, I've also done like early music with kids, classical style pieces with kids. You know, it's what again, whatever I kind of like, I'm attracted to. I would say you have to look at the kids you're teaching. Let's pretend you're in a public school. What percentage of those people are going to actually go into music in the future? A pretty small percentage. Um, mm. And I, some people, I think in their mind, go, "Oh my God! Well, then this is it. I better, I better give them all the best that music has to offer because after this." There's nothing, but I would say after this, they'll always have YouTube. They'll always be able to reach out and find it, but they might not ever be able to experience it in such an intense, personal, connected, collective way. They might never right. have this ensemble experience again. So I wanna choose rep that's gonna give them what I think is the reason we all do music, which is this overwhelming feeling of being alive and being connected and love. So right. whatever that rep happens to be, I don't know if when, you know, Susie dies, she's going to say, you know, like, oh, my God, thank God my teacher taught me that Mozart concerto, boobity boop, you know. But I think she actually <laughs> might think, like she might think of that time that her teacher did freaking monkey chant and how connected she felt to this world and how alive she feels. That's what I think. Mm, yeah, I mean, we can we can only hope that that those kind of experiences stick with the kids. Um, you and know, you I, with classical music. I don't. I do want to say that because it sounds like again, I'm like trashing classical. I I believe in that experience in classical music mm -hmm. as well. It's just that I believe that it's about that kernel, the essence of it, before it's about all the fluff around it of what it is. If that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, yeah, that's that, that's a great point. Um, and with that, we shall transition to the next song, which, you know, I, I assume Sean feels the same. I know he feels so connected to that song. No, I'm just kidding. I don't know what he feels. He's currently moving rooms. Um, but you know what, before he said, while he's getting set up, I do have one more, uh, one more question for you. And that is, I guess it's not really for this song in particular, but for all the songs that you've chosen, are there any that you've you've chosen and you thought they were a good experience, but you might hold off on doing them again? Hmm, that's interesting. Well, 
I don't know. I mean, I can't think of any in particular right now, but I suppose there is some, something of getting tired, not tired of a song, but like you did that. You know what I mean? Like you've done right. it. Like, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I would do Chuck again. I would, yeah. I, it would be cool to do it again. Like it was fun, but it'll never be what it was that time. Cause that time it was like so scary and so exciting and so challenging. And now it would be a revisiting. Sometimes that's mm -hmm. like welcome. And you're like, Oh, old friend. And sometimes it's like, Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We do this. We do this. We do that. You know. Um, so yeah, I don't think I I I I stand behind yeah. all the choices. I would do them all again, but I do try like anytime I do, I try to never do the same piece twice, which is really obnoxious. I don't know why I do this to myself. But I you know, but I, I try to just explore mm -hmm. music as much as possible so that I don't get stale and I don't stop learning and growing. Yeah. All right, and with that, speaking of not getting stale, Sean? That's right. Um, so next on, we're gonna talk about 900 Miles with Philip Sylvie. Um, he writes that he grew up in rural Pennsylvania, uh, one of 10 children born to a elementary school principal and a registered nurse. And he says that my mom, she knew I was musical by the way I could not stop swaying on stage when my kindergarten class performed. I started playing piano in second grade, tried to quit a couple of years later, but had to stick with a three-year commitment I made with my folks. He writes, good thing I did. He says, I remember during opening exercises in third grade, sitting on the crowded carpet with my legs crossed, loving the sound of all of us singing white choral bells and three-part canon. In sixth grade, I sang my first solo in Gershwin's I Am Biding My Time wearing a too-big-for-me cowboy hat supplied by my hippie generation music teacher, Mrs. Holsinger. Yes, Singer was right in her name, and that's what he writes for this song. So, Meredith, back to my old age-old question. How did you find out about Mr. Philip Sylvie? <laughs> I don't know. It probably was. <laughs> yeah, this is probably another one where I found it on YouTube or something. God only knows. Or sometimes I just find it in the library and go and fiddle around with it. I do remember falling in love with the piano part. I played through it and I practiced really hard because I'm not great at piano because I loved it so much. Um, yeah. Okay. And and with that, um, do you want to help me break down a piece like this? Because because there's so many great elements with this piece. It's very beautiful. I've heard it sung before um, with a, sort of a, a younger choir. Um, okay. And it's very practical. I think it's very nice a nice setting. I think it's nice. I, I find it to be a very nice middle piece. Mm. <laughs> a nice ender beat. I find it's like kind of like a nice, sort of like a nice totally a middle piece. Yeah. Like, like a nice like tur a turkey, you know, lettuce, tomato, you know, all that sort of like 900 miles. Making right. a sandwich sort of thing. But how would you describe this piece to someone who didn't really know it that well? Yeah, it's definitely a middle piece. I do it. Um, actually, when I do like regionals choirs, or festival choirs, I usually I'll use this piece as the middle piece. Um, mm. It's it's very haunting. It opens in a haunting way. A lot of exposed lines for your tenors and basses, which again can be scary maybe for some conductors because they're afraid of like right the puberty boy singer. Um, but it's a oh god, it's such a great opportunity to get them to Our sing thing. something that's really sensitive and to not have them just holler. And I love having them hollered out too, but this is really again songs that don't sell these kids short because they are just as emotive and just as thoughtful as you and I. In fact, sometimes more. So this is sort of, what a good I am walking on this track. So if you can ask them for that kind of emotive singing, ah, oh, 
It's amazing. It's a great experience for them. In the middle of the piece, there are these killer chords. There's a chord that sounds just like a train whistle. If you get your kids to just like blast it out and they just, they carry it home and then the piano, da, 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 da. It's, yeah, it's stunning. It's so well-written. And then it goes back to that haunting ghost-like tenor bass that just kind of keeps walking down the track. Um, yeah. So yeah, I really love it for, for all of the opportunities to have your tenors and basses really get to emote. Right, yeah. And I've been in chorus well enough to know that that might be the hardest group of people to energize, you know? I mean, I, I myself am a very energetic person. I'm not sure if you can tell. Yeah. <laughs> jittery movements and Hunter not trying to tell you about that. Okay. Um, <laughs> I wanted to ask you because this piece does acquire a lot of energy, hmm. very a lot of steady energy. Yeah. How does one get there? How do you tell your students to say, okay, in this section, I don't want you to feel like you're trying to get there because there's moments like there are different pieces. Like let's let's take for example maybe a runestab where you are getting to a climax of a piece. Um, for this piece, I don't really feel like there's that sort of leaning to a climax, maybe to that train whistle, like you had yeah. mentioned, maybe uh -huh. moving away very slowly. I feel like there's a really nice plateau with this piece. Yeah, yeah kind of like. Mm -hmm. Right. How do you, so my question is, how do you energize these students to remember to sort of keep their energy going without losing pitch or tone? Huh, that's interesting. I guess this goes back to kind of my approach with music is that if if they love the piece and they get it and you get it, mm -hmm. you might not need to talk so technical with them because the the emotive needs mm -hmm. will bring out, I don't know if this makes sense, it'll bring out the technical prowess in them because mm -hmm. they know, like that train whistle, for example, you could say, oh, we got to talk about support. We're going to have to talk about the vowel. We're going to have to talk about the breath, you know? Or you can just talk about the whistle and you can be like, it's got to sound like a freaking train whistle and you got to do it. And then you just got to plow and then you show them with your gesture and with all of your being and you, you go, oh my God, sell it, go, go, go. They're going to do it. And the remarkable thing is the technique tends to follow. Right. Sometimes I think we go about it backwards. And so we'll say, right, we'll say to the boys, you know, you need to support. It's out of tune here. And instead, if you just, if you, yeah, if you just let them be musical, if you allow them to express, I swear to God, you're going to see they can do 95% of it without you getting technical. Right. And that's great. Because um, there's so many pieces out there where you hear very nice uh, men's choir pieces that are slow, but the students are out of tune and they're not listening to one another because they they're are. not taking that attention to detail. <laughs> And, you know, I will say, like, I, you know, I've done this piece a couple of times because I have done it at the festival things. Um, right. There is a tendency. It's written in a rough part of the voice for this age. It really is. And if you want them to emote, they're not trained enough to totally be able to do that and still stay in tune and still do this. And da, da, da. and that's totally OK. Right. It's totally fine because, yeah. I, again, I think this is we're building here. And I think it's the most important thing is to get them to feel that music. And those who go on in music, they'll be trained. And they'll go to their teacher, but you can't train feeling. You can't train emotion and self. Yeah. So if you start with that, letting them get that out, then later on in the line, they can you can finally be like, so also you're out of tune. Let's talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> which is really, and I think this goes back to that whole teacher evaluation nonsense, which was basically they were saying, you have to tell them that from the get-go. And I'm like, well, there it is, because now you want to know why your boys don't want to sing? 
This is why they don't want to sing because they finally were brave and they opened their mouths and they went to say something and you went, hmm, that's a two. Like, that's what it is. So I think the art is letting them emote, letting them be a little bit sloppy, let it be a little bit messy for the sake of the art of the music. Right. You can deal with the technical stuff later when they're ready. You know, I had a choir director once say to a bunch of us, and we were working on a, a, a song that we were learning by rote, and one of the lines was booty. And he says, <laughs> nobody takes this the wrong way, but the booty is flat. Yes. And that, and that killed, and that killed everybody in the, in the, in the choir. They were <laughs> laughing hysterically. Uh, and they got his point right away, and we fixed it. Which yeah. is crazy, you know? And like you said, with small intentions come bigger consequences or bigger ideas mm -hmm. of two things. And I'm so glad right. that you were talking about that with this piece because it's such a, like you were saying, it's a middle piece. But mm -hmm. how do we define a middle piece? We define it by its value and its ferocity mm -hmm. or its, its, its talent. Um, so on that note, we are going to pop right over to a uh, movement that I got to talk about in my uh, bibliography, The Cuckoo. Um, maybe I got cut off in that presentation. But uh, <laughs> Rob Hugh Hunter, take it away. Sure. So like Sean said, this is The Cuckoo by Rob Hugh. And he received his BM in education from the University of North Carolina, Greensboro and his master's in music uh, from the Hart School of Music, uh, Hart College, sorry, Hart College of Music. Um, and then he completed summer studies at the Kodai Musical Training Institute and the Institute for Choral Music Education. Uh, and then he was a full, you know, he was part of the Fulbright Groups Project Abroad. And then he had a grant that was funded a summer in Kenya where he had the opportunity to study with Kenyan composers. And uh, he then received the Individual Artistic Award in Composition from the Connecticut Commission uh, on the arts, and then returned to Kenya to continue his study of African choral music. And he has been commissioned to compose music for choirs of all ages. And his music's been performed throughout the United States, Canada, and Europe. And he currently teaches vocal music at Wolcott Elementary School in West Hartford. And in 93, he was selected as West Hartford's Teacher of the Year, which is very cool because actually, I think I know someone who might actually teach at that high school, at that elementary school. So I should, I should ask them if but I can't remember who it was. That's, that's a shame. But anyway, he, uh, yeah, it's like, well, it was totally, you know, a tangent. So with his background in African, uh, studying African music, it works well with the conductor of this particular video that we watched, uh, which is Rollo Dilworth, who also happened to uh, be a conductor and educator from uh, North Park University, but he studied African music as well. That was a big focus of his. And having said that, since both the composer and the conductor studied African music, do you think that, uh, what are some of the African characteristics in this song? Well, I don't know. I, I was thinking about this question because the truth is the song is, it's an Appalachian folk song. Uh, which that has its roots in English folk songs from the from the UK from the the Isles, right? Um, but this yeah. question goes deeper because it's kind of our understanding. As soon as we hear, it, we go, "Oh, African music." We go, "Oh, it must be uh, it's the the rhythm and the you know the drums and the this." And I think that's important to note. I think what it is is we tend to go when we think of African music, we're going straight to kind of the indigenous to the roots of African music, 
And we do forget that right. we all have similar roots. So how interesting is it that in this, basically this Anglo folk song, we find some similarities. I think that's really cool. I think that's really important yeah. to point out because we, it's that th that focus on primal that I'm so into. It's that we we all kind of we all kind of move to the same heartbeat, and so it's not surprising that some of our more primal and folk music have these similarities. I think it's a mm -hmm. really great thing to bring up. Um, now, I don't know, you know, I'm not Rolo. I don't know what <laughs> what you know he thinks about it and how how he views it. But yeah, certainly there's that rhythmic breakdown section that does have similarities to a lot of actually South African music, but. But it has even more similarities to English folk music. There's plenty right. of that, right? So it's it's just an interesting question and something I hadn't thought of. But yeah, it's very interesting. Well, you know, that's something when I was because, like I had said before, when Sean was talking about the Jenkins piece, um, a lot of his works have that very, like you call it, primal mm. uh, heartbeat. It has that that percussive aspect to it, and the well, you know, Welsh music. And, and music of the Isles, a lot of times the Celtic style, uh, very that is a very big part of it. So when you hear music that has that, I often find it's difficult to discern unless there's vocals to it. I find it difficult to discern, is it African-based? Is it Celtic? Is okay. it you know the Norse area because they were also very big on it? Or is it, could it possibly be Eastern? Because they also, you know, like uh, Chinese folk music and a lot of Arabic folk music, a lot of those all have very heavy heartbeat-like uh, chords. Mm -hmm. which, which this song obviously very much represents, or, or not, not represents, but it very much takes to. Right. Right. So it's, I'm glad you said what you did because it's true. The folk music, which generally tends to be the oldest music in a culture, Right. Are sharing these similar characteristics. Yes. And I think, you know, I think it's a mistake that we at some point labeled a certain category of music. We started calling it world music. Yeah. Right? Implying that, that, you know, that there's Western music, which is whatever it is, you know, and then there's this world music, which is all mm -hmm. you know, tribal. And but the truth is, I think what we were trying to say is folk music. I think what we were yeah. trying to say is there's there's the mu the folk music, and then there's develop you know music that's developed through schooling, through technique, which can happen in any culture and in any any place, right? I think right. we separated it the wrong way, and it gave people yeah. the wrong impression. Um, so I don't know. I'm very interested in that actually, and I, I think I think it has the potential to unify us a little bit more than maybe we are right now when we talk about diversity in music. Right. I, I, think, I think you're very. I think you're very right. And something that I, you know, I got the opportunity to actually, when I was doing my internship, I had a two year internship actually at a private school. And um, I was a, the teacher that I was interning with, let me teach the, the music history class in the second year. And, um, or uh, I'm sorry, it was, it was the music theory class that she broke down into like, it was a, a two thirds music theory, one third music appreciation type thing. And, what we decided was the best way to teach that class was was by time period, mm. right? So I mean, and this is not like a unique a unique view, but we talked about the age of antiquity first. Then we talked about in you know uh, transition into the medieval era, into the Renaissance, into on and on until the modern era. And I found that you know we we did talk about the different places. We talked about the age of antiquity in Egypt, mm. in Greece, 
in ancient Rome in, uh, we didn't talk so much about Eastern culture, but when we're looking at a lot of those places, the students, they, they didn't see a lot of a difference between those places, mm. which is sort of to your point, right? I mean, it's it's not really about the place, it's about the time period, right? Because like you said, we all have similar roots if you go back far enough. So there should be similarities in yeah. the base of our culture. And it's about the time period and it's also about the, um, I guess the genre, you know, we, let's say early music, right? Let's talk right. about Tudor music. Let's talk about Talus. Let's talk about Talus. So, <laughs> let's talk about Talus. So you've got Talus. Loves Talus. So Talus is writing in a schooled style, right? A developed mm -hmm. style where there are rules and techniques and he's writing high art music, choral music. At the very same time, we have folk music going on. We have people dancing in carols in rounds and doing right? There's the sea shanty. Yeah, ding dong merrily on high. That sounds like modern pop music slash also can sound like the same chords that you might hear in South African music slash. We're talking about two different genres going on at the same time, always. Even today, we have the classical and the popular, and that's okay. I just think we need to talk more about it so that we understand yeah. that there's not one culture that only does folk and popular, right? And then the Western culture only does the high art and, you know, whatever. Right. It's not true. All cultures are doing both concurrently. Right. capable of both. It's, yeah. Mm -hmm. it's an important topic to get into someday. <laughs> yeah, no, I definitely think you're right. I mean, my my other major is is Italian, and so when when I talk about certain things in Italian culture, one of the things I try to bring into it is is music uh, when I'm teaching. And you know, we we see the same thing, right? I mean, if we want to say quote unquote Western music, um, who were the big composers of really the the 16th and and uh, 17th centuries? A lot of them were Italian, right? And they were composing this very high art material, but at the same time, still present today, but it was being developed at the same time where this very, uh, it was it was the, the music of the peasantry, right? It was the folk music. They had the accordions, they had the, the bagpipes, they had, right? I mean, it, it's all these very folky instruments that they were using to make music. They didn't really care what Vivaldi was doing because they figured, I'm never going to do that. But there was a section of culture who said, I don't care what the peasants are doing. I'm never going to do that. But they were all on the same continent, in the same country, possibly even in the same town. Mm -hmm. And it's running concurrently. And born listening to that same heartbeat, which is what powers the rhythm behind all of our music. I right. Definitely. Yeah. And, uh, oh, sorry, what were you gonna say? No, it's, it's cool. I just love talking about it. Yeah. It's, I find it very interesting before I pass it to Sean. My only other question was the song is called the cuckoo, right? And much like the monkey chant that we had in the other song, how do you think, uh, Hugh tries to personify the cuckoo in this song? I thought that was cool. Cause that wasn't something I had thought about. You know, it is a folk song. The melody exists already, but, but it is a cool point. It, it could be in the, those, that little like right yeah very staccato rhythm yeah that's really cool so i'm glad you brought it up because i had never thought of it that way and and you're totally right i definitely think that's in there that little naggy like it's in there yep right 
yeah, I figured I'd just bring that up before we moved on because we had moved away from the song in a larger <laughs> right, discussion about <laughs> like music. I mean, that's sort of what this is about, but you know. Jeez. It works. <laughs> and speaking of music from another another culture, uh, I know Sean would like to talk about Tres Cantos Nativos. That is right. And again, let me say that again with my best Spanish accent, Tres Cantos Nativos by Marcos Liete. Uh, studying music since he was five, Marcos Liete debuted professionally in choir and vocal music in 1967, having created several choirs, of which the most important is Garganta Profunda. As a arranger, he incorporated the advanced harmonic language developed by the Bossa Nova and MPB into vocal parts. Um, there is not a lot of music on here that uses every single body part, um, my grandpa likes to use, has this joke that says, what part of the pig do they not use? And he says, the oink, because Ooh. they use every part of the pig. In this, I believe they use everything. Fingers, stomping, clapping, yelling, mm -hmm. screaming, singing. What is your opinion on that? That's cool. I So, you know, I, I actually did this piece. I do it with like my own choreography that I made up. Um, mm -hmm. So I don't know. I'm trying to think if I use all the parts except the oink on it, but <laughs> <laughs> but I do think this is similar, I guess, to the first piece in in where it's it's right. a way to physically express physically mm. express what we what we're trying to express musically, right. um, and because this is, I mean, this isn't even like just oh, it's kind of tribal. Like it actually is tribal. Like this is music taken down from the tribes in Brazil. Right. You know, it's it's again trying to express that primal instinct to move right. to music, which I find really cool. Um, and I find that the kids really like, they like that it is made up, like that we have our own version of it. I think this is one of those things I'd encourage people, try your own, like try to make your own interpretation of this. Take the kids' suggestions, work it into something that's cool. Um, yeah, and I definitely like, in terms of movement, when you're making your own movements, often you'll have a really stupid idea and you are absolutely right. It like is legit stupid. Like, I think it would be like, oh, there's no such thing. Like, nope, there definitely is a such thing. Like I've seen myself in the bathroom mirror and I'm like, oh my God, what am I thinking? But usually it morphs into a really good idea. So stick with it. You'll start with something really dumb and you'll be like, I don't know. I'm feeling like we should just be like, like, ha, ha. And you're like, that's ridiculous. I don't want to do that. But then slowly that can morph into like, something really cool that you're like no yeah yeah Meredith Monkett you know it's yeah. Yeah. funny I, I wanted to mention with this piece it almost gave me great locomotive chase vibes Robert Smith I'm not sure if you ever heard of that piece before mm -mm. um so in that piece um I was able to go to a Connecticut middle school all-state uh when I was in middle school um, and one of the pieces that the concert band played was with this piece. And it reminded me of this piece because there are a lot of elements that go along with keeping them interested, like reminding them, oh, here's the train. It's going to catch up, you know, and right behind it is sort of something like that. It's that too. And um, it almost felt like in this piece you had children mimicking the sounds of whistling mm -hmm. and raindrops. Mm -hmm. It almost, I was going to say, uh, I remember what I was going to talk about. I was going to say it almost reminded me of a David, Daniel Elder piece. Uh, do you know three nocturnes? No. Okay. It, it it almost felt like that because he uses um, the vocabulary of the of the body. He uses the vocabulary of the voice, not mm. just being able to rely on one single identity of your other songs. Which is is it wrong? But the title of the song playing a role of 
of what it means to sort of set the scene. Yes. You know? Which I think is really important with the song. Absolutely. Uh, so with the song, um, and I think even almost with this, with uh, even with the technique of nasality too, you know, mm -hmm. I think that's something that's really important too. And we don't, you might use that maybe in like a warm up to get them loosened. Um, again, I'm, I'm, I'm flexing all my core <laughs> lingo because my, my girlfriend is a, a, a um, master's student. Now she's a um, middle school director. Um, okay. But uh, I wanted to mention that because I think this piece does really attribute a lot of that to what we're talking about. Yeah. So, and it's hard to describe this vocal timbre, um, but how would you go about teaching them? Is it that even, is it just that silly where you're just going to be like, sound like this as nasally no. as possible? See, it's not that silly because I look at the piece as like not silly because I take right. this piece so seriously. If you ever right. saw me do this in concert, you'd be like, who is this freaking lady? Like, what am I? <laughs> but I like, I feel it. I shout, I turn around to the audience and I like hiss at them. I get so into this <laughs> I, because I, I feel it. And like, so I think, I think that is key is, is you, again, you got to buy in. You don't, you don't approach it from a technique stand and say, now here, you know, and we do this in the warm up. Now in this section, no, you just go like, you're like, oh my God, you're like birds in the jungle and you're like aggressive and you're going to just get down. And they're like, oh, okay, sure. And then they just do it. Like, it's literally that simple. Right. You just go in guns blazing hundred percent. And you're like, we're doing this. And they're like, okay, we're doing this done. And if you can model it, pretty good chance they can do it. These are, again, like kind of what you were saying, these are sounds that are built into us. We have the, it's, it's basically just tapping into things we already have. It's no mystery. These are baby sounds. These are like animal sounds. I want to go back to the audience reactions to you hissing at them, <laughs> making those noises. But what were their, what were their gut reactions to that? I don't know. I actually don't know. When I do this piece, I do. So I, I tend to open uh, some of my festival things with this piece, which is fun. You know, I'm like, they just come out and like do jungle noises and everything. And I come out and do jungle noises. I don't know. Like often, often I'll be standing so close to people that, yeah, when I turn around, I'm like right in some like old lady's face hissing. But I, <laughs> I, I would, I would guess it's, it's spread out. I would guess about half of them are like, holy crap, this is really cool. Like I want to do this too. And maybe the other half are thinking again, like, Ooh, is this really like appropriate? You know? I was going to say, I felt the same way going to a room full of teeth concert mm. where I was sitting down with my girlfriend. She's like, Oh, I'm so excited for you to listen to them. And they came out and they were unbelievable. And I looked over someone's like blocking their ears and they're like, Oh, what is this? Um, almost crying. Um, but I love, I love that. I love that there is that distinction. But I also don't like it because then how do we build upon that? How do we get them to that next level? Which also they might not want, you know? And that's another right. great discussion to have too. There's this great Onion article. I, I laugh so much because I'm actually one of those people. I'm like that person in the audience who's like, oh God, don't come up to me. Oh, don't <laughs> me. Like, oh God. And so I really am where they said, you know, uh-oh, you know, like choir jumps off stage during concert, starts going into audience, and you're like, oh God, right, that's the worst. So I think I think here it's all about intention or maybe like lack thereof. Right. So the intention isn't mm -hmm. like, you know, like I'm not hissing in grandma's face to like get her involved or whatever. I'm just hissing because I've got a hiss because like I feel it. Right, and I, yeah. I guess, I don't know, for me, that's where I'm like, 
okay, I think this is okay. Cause it's not just, it's not a performance. We're just musicking. I'm just doing right. what I'm doing. We're doing what we're doing. We don't require participation. It's okay. <laughs> I love that reaction because I got to do, um, I've done theater before and something that Hunter knows that I, I've done is this, uh, I did a benefit concert for t for a, a group that Hunter knows is TYA Trumbull Youth Association. And something that I did with them was I sang um, Grease Lightning. And one of the things that the choreographer wanted was all these kids to come downstage and hang out with all the parents and stuff and, oh, no. and do like the, the Thunderbird dances right, right. and stuff. And I remember seeing some of the parents go, oh God, please Lord don't point at me, like, please. And some of the, even when the students started working on it, they were like, I don't want to go walk no. down and dance with someone doing this and that, you know? And I was like, thank God I don't have to do that. No, but I love that that intention of whether you think you're putting yourself out in that comfort zone, yeah. you know? And um, I keep talking about different stories, but another story would be a friend of mine who was in a show with me said that, oh, I do want to be touched during the audience you know that sounds fine with me and we would designate them with something like that okay um, so with that in mind how do you go about treating this piece do you still go forward with the forward velocity that you have or do you think about it where you need to find a way to bridge them to get there or do you do you find that because of your your forward velocity that you use that to help them to get there hmm Oh, if I'm that being was a loaded honest, question. No, if I'm being honest, I think I'm just a selfish musician in this case. <laughs> where, like, <laughs> where I pretty much am just doing what I want in the moment. Right. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And uh, but I actually think there is something to that. I think it's kind of like um those mm -hmm. games. What is it? Uh icebreakers. Oh god, I hate icebreakers so much because I'm like, look if i want to be friends with this person i'm sure we'll become friends we're not going to become friends because we did two truths and a lie or fall on me see if you catch i you know like that okay i hate icebreakers and i think it's the same thing with music i think trying too hard to bridge the gap and get your audience or overthinking something and saying oh god am i alienating the audience i think at the end of the day just do the music you do you, do what you got to do, and people will follow, or they won't, or whatever, but at least you did the music. Hmm. Yeah, It you should know, be organic. You know, why is old critic Hunter Sagona once said, music speaks? Music you know, speaks. I, I have never gone back on those words ever, so um, Hunter, you want to lead us into the next song? Indeed, I certainly can. It's nice to hear about any wisdom I have. Um, all right, so the next uh, the next song is "Stand Together" by Jim. I'm gonna butcher his last name, Jim Popolis. I I, I think it sounds Greek, so I, I think that's how you say it. Um, and he's a composer, orchestrator, and conductor uh, for many genres. And uh, he he it says he looks to bridge the, the classical world and contemporary w rhythms, voices, and computer technology. So that's certainly a, a goal um, and something I think that is becoming more popular now. And the song that he, like I said, is Stand Together that, that we're listening to, that you chose. And as I understand it, this song happens, uh, or that the composer happens to do a bit of film scoring, like, I, like we read in his bio there. And even it's a vocal work, um, how does a standalone piece differ, do you think, from putting together like vocal works for a film score? 
Oh God, that might be above my area of expertise. I don't know. It's I, that's a good question. I actually didn't know that about Papoulis. So he does mm -hmm. film scores, huh? Yeah, I think he has. I think he does mm -hmm. uh, some film work. I guess I can see that because a lot of his music. I mean, he's known for writing these kinds of really accessible, again, kind of like tapping into the primal thing a little bit and also the pop thing, definitely writing for kids. Um, but they all have kind of, yeah, this like rhythmic drive. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I guess I'd have to think more about that. I did not know that he wrote for films. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, That's I'm just curious like if like as, as, someone, as someone who knows the, the vocal world, um, obviously if you're, if you're going to be, you know, doing just a, a work that's meant for live performance, mm -hmm. you might write something a certain way, or if you're doing something, you know, that's going to be heard for the first time through another medium. I wonder if you, you know, would you approach it differently, putting it together? Yeah, that actually is interesting. Yeah. And so, I mean, definitely when you get these arrangements, especially for this level of music, you're going to get a lot of instructions, you know, like the forward. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because they know that it's for teachers and students and they try and kind of hold your hand through the piece a little bit more. Um, so I, I would say, yeah, definitely more of that. And it's interesting, this particular piece, actually, he wrote two different endings oh. that you can choose, which certainly you wouldn't do for a film score. You have to choose before. You beforehand, <laughs> yes. Yeah, the decision must be made. <laughs> but in this one, it, there's like the the happy bombastic ending, you know, like, mm -hmm. da, 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 hey, you know, I don't know, it's not actually that, but you know, <laughs> and then there's like the like, the, it's not sad, but just kind of the drift away ending, the fade out ending, which is the one I choose. Um, so that's interesting. Yeah, that mm -hmm. would definitely be different than if you had to do a film score. Yeah. It also brings up the whole live versus recorded performance, right? Which it, huh, in uh, 2020 into 2021 here is something I think we've all become familiar with. <laughs> you know, it, do you find that makes a difference on what you choose to perform or how you choose to perform it? If you know you're going to be either in person or if it's going to have to be hmm. vir done virtually? Yeah, I don't like virtual. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that. I don't know many people who do. Yeah, I don't like virtual and I don't like like the the um experience I've had with like recording sessions. It's really hard for me. I find it a little bit stressful. I'm sure everyone does. Um and it feels unnatural because you are aware, which is weird because of course when you're performing in person, you have an audience and you you're aware of that somebody's listening, but with a recording there's that pressure. There's a pressure to get it right. Mm -hmm. Accuracy, there it is, right? And in a live performance, there's a little more of like, let's just be in the moment, let it be what it is. Um, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I just I was curious, because obviously, you know, my, my vocal, uh, the, my experience in the vocal world is limited. So I'm curious, because yeah. I, I can think about it from an instrumentalist standpoint, there are obviously some things that are the same, because um, it's musicality in general, but I was just curious. Um, I like that, the, uh, just to say something about the song, I happen to like, there's one part in it, and it might come across maybe well. I saw in the video they were recording this in like a church. Uh, I bet it would probably sound cool in a very large open space, but there's a, a part where like one voice is swelling and the other one is continuing to move. And then it happens again. And it almost creates like this little, not, not echo effect, but I don't know. It's just cool to have the one more stable sound yeah. and then you have the continued movement underneath it. Yeah, and actually the video I sent you, that is my choir. That's that's the children's chorus doing it. Um, 
they we had oh, to. Oh, that's oh really? I did yeah. Not, I did not catch on to that. Yeah, so that that's me long ago with short hair, but <laughs> uh, and brown hair. Ah, is <laughs> <laughs> the days. Um, so yeah, um, I actually had to change some things in terms of setup of the choir because of that, because it is very segmented. Like there's a there's a strong part of melody, so the sopranos are actually all in one row in the front. Mm -hmm. um, and then I had clumped behind them kind of those backup parts of the twos and the threes who do those little swells. Hey, yo, and hey, you know, they're like definitely yeah. backup singers. And I think placement can change both the sound and the audience's perception of the sound, being able to see it visually. Right. Um, and also in that large space, being able to pick up that melody line, we had to bring the girl, the, yeah, that section forward. So yeah, those are all considerations. Yeah. And now, and since you mentioned placement and, since I now know this was you doing it, although in retrospect, looking at the video, it says your name right there. So I guess I'm just a moron um, yeah. for not noticing. But what was your reasoning for having the, the group in the back start in back and moving them forward? So actually that performance is the same concert where uh, they did Chuck. So Aha. Well, I noticed the church, so I thought that might've been That's what it was. the church with the crucifix of like right. craziness. Yeah. So, um, they had just been in chalk formation. And so it had to be a transition. And so what I did is I had- like a military maneuver. Yeah. And I had just the front row sopranos come down. And then I mm -hmm. said, back rows, just get yourself at least to the edge. And then as the music kind of pumps up into verse two, we can like step forward and it kind of makes a, you know, to fit, so it goes with the music. It goes with the feeling. Yeah. Yeah. Does it create any vocal effect within the space or for the listener? <laughs> I don't know if that one did, but well, maybe for the listener, again, I think visually, it's not necessarily that it's gonna change the sound, but just seeing it can call your attention to what's happening happening musically. Yeah. That makes sense, yeah. No, it does. And one more thing before we, uh, before we say goodbye is the song, this song in particular of all the other ones that I, that I listened to of your choices, seems to be the most about control. Like obviously all music needs control. You must have control, but you know, the, this one in particular, it seems like it could be the kind of song where they'd want to just sort of belt it out and you start to lose some of the, some of the mm. musicality, you know, the, you know, starts blaring or, or you strain your voice. How do you keep students in general? And it doesn't necessarily have to be just for this song, but how do you keep students in general from keeping their volume in check? Huh. Making sure that the fortes are fortes and the pianos are pianos. That's cool that you notice it. Again, I approach it not from the like technical standpoint. I don't necessarily speak in those terms even. I don't even say right. forte and piano, not because they can't understand it, but because I think there's a better way. Um, so it's more from modeling and what kind of expression we're trying to get across. Specifically in this song, you're absolutely right. The girls in the front started getting almost too poppy, a little aggressive because they loved it so much. And then yeah. we like, I'm like, oh, <laughs> oh, I know you believe it. I know. And then I, I was like, could we, like, I think it would be more powerful if we kind of float it, if it's just a suggestion. And just mm -hmm. saying that changed their sound. You can even hear it. They just kind of float. We are, you know, it's like, ah. So it's more inviting rather than uh, pushing a message. Mm -hmm. Got that. So, so rather than dealing with technical issues again, rather than speaking specifically about vocal production, you you talk about the kind of message we're trying to send. It immediately will change their sound and the mm -hmm. way we're doing it. So, I suppose that sort of answers my last question, which is, uh, which I sort of just thought of. 
do you find the the current music that kids listen to have well I, I imagine it does have an influence how on how they start to sing and obviously a lot of pop music it's a lot of belt voice right so mm -hmm. that's not always the sound you're looking for it might work but in a song like this is it always the best have did you find you had to combat any of that yeah sometimes you do and uh, sometimes you'll get a singer audition and you can hear they, they've got that belty sound. But I don't know, for me, I always look at it as like something in the arsenal where it's like, okay, when we need that, we've got it. I know I can go to so-and-so and she's got it, you mm -hmm. know? And then with yeah. that person, you just you just explain like that that's that sound for this right now, back it off. Again, you'd be surprised. It's not that difficult, especially if you're doing it honestly and opening openly and approaching it from this, the place of the music. They, they can understand that. And actually for people who are belters, it can be hard to get rid of that because it's very vulnerable again, Yeah, go into a head voice. So you have to work out that relationship with them of like, it's totally okay that you're gonna feel really shaky. You're gonna feel really weak and you're gonna feel like ghosty. <laughs> and it's totally yeah. fine. If you feel that way, you're doing it right for this kind of mood. Yeah. Right. And I feel like with guys in particular, if they have to use like either their falsetto or some sort of head voice, might be a little like, not that they're gonna fight you on it, but like you said, it's exposed. It, it does feel very open airy. So there may be a little bit like, ah, do I really wanna do that? Yeah, for sure. I think I love, I actually love getting my like changed voice boys to sing, like really mm -hmm. pushing them to sing out because that's a good place to start because then they just get it out. But I think if you've built a rapport with them, if they trust you, then, then they trust you to be musical and artful around you. I think that's mm -hmm. the you build that safety and trust, and you don't do it with uh, the games. What are those games I hate? I forgot. Uh, icebreakers. Icebreakers, oh my God. You don't do yeah. it with icebreakers. You do it because you are vulnerable in front of them, because you stand in front of them and you just go, here it is, this is it. And they're like, okay, I can get behind that. Here's mine, like, yeah. Yeah, that's, because uh, yeah, I, I hate those two. I remember when I went to college, the first day, like the first day at orientation, that's what they do, right? They split you up and you do it in, in class every, you know, every start of the school year. But I remember specifically in college, they split us up. We went into our groups and they were like, okay, guys, here's what we're going to do. You're going to carry the other person. Ah. And you're like, oh. no. like, why do I have to? Right. And also I'm not carrying you. I don't know you. Right. I don't know you. And I actually get really angry that anyone would ask me to suddenly trust and carry this person that I have no reason to. But what, how beautiful would it be if I developed that naturally? And then it wasn't even, no one had to ask me to carry them. Of course right. I carry them. Of course I will. It, it should be developed. I also don't do warm-ups. Don't tell anyone or tell everybody. I don't do warm-ups usually. No. I, I don't know if I even believe in them because I think you can teach that kind of stuff through the course of the rehearsal uh, to some extent. I, I do understand the value, but I think it's the same kind of thing. It's this like phony baloney like pretending that we're making music and this is how we build community and we always start with the stretch and it's like or we don't or we just make music we mm -hmm. can do that we yeah. can just make music and then we could just like move during the music and that would be our stretch we could just mm -hmm. do it for realsies right and you know for, i think that's a that's a very uh choir i i think that's a very choir based thing sure. because instrumentalists you're gonna then rely on the instrumentalists themselves to warm up the instrument. And you're like, eh, they won't always, right. so you sort of have to sometimes because yeah. you need them. If you play a wind instrument or yeah. specifically wind instrument, you're not gonna warm up a, a timpani, but you know, you need them to sort of get the instrument going. Right. 
So in that case, yeah. But I can yeah. totally see in your world why that's not going to fly. Well, and certainly before the voice teachers come after me, certainly vocally there are <laughs> there are things you have to warm up as well. But with the voice, you have to remember these people are walking throughout their day, talking, interacting. Whereas your band students are not, the instrument isn't their body. The instrument has not been walking around all day. The right. instrument itself needs to warm up in addition to their chops. You know, if you're a trumpet player, you're not walking around going, you know. <laughs> maybe, I don't know, maybe Sean does that. Maybe Sean does that. Is that your secret? I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, I think I think we need to, right, technical exercise is one thing, but this whole concept of warm up, of team building, if it doesn't happen naturally, then I don't think it's real. I think it's right. BS. And I think it'll come out in your sound. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they won't, you know, they won't really believe. You know, the idea is for them to leave the classroom believing it also. And if they know it's only in that classroom, then it's not, like you said, it's not real. Yeah. They, I mean, they know when I look at them and they know it's real because, because it is. I mean, it's that simple. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah, just do exactly. what you like and be real about it. Don't lie. That's it. <laughs> That's it's very, very true. Yeah. And on that note, I would like to thank you, Meredith. You've been a very, very insightful guest. I, I really enjoyed having these discussions with you, and uh, especially our our discussion, you know, about the the primality and the the historical <laughs> aspect. That I find it very interesting. Yeah. Um, so I want to thank you for being on, and then I'll pass it over to Sean. But thank you, and uh, we certainly hope to see you again. Yeah, no, this was a lot of fun. I have never done a podcast before. You yeah, it was fun to have. <laughs> it was fun to have you on. So, Sean? Yeah. Thank you, Meredith. That was so informative and so interesting. Um, wow, what an interview. Okay. <laughs> 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 I want to think about now, um, which I think should be the end of a podcast. Um, so I want to thank you, and uh, we'll see you next time. So yeah, sounds good. See you around. That's it for me. My name is Sean Rakunis, and that guy over there, his name is Hunter Zagona. And thank you again, Meredith, for your wise insight. Next time, we will sit down with my friend Mary Haddix, a professional horn player and prospective DMA student. So keep listening to what you love. <laughs>